Hello and welcome to the Feast and Be Filled podcast. My name is Joey Schwartz and this show is all about helping followers of Jesus feast on the word and be filled with the spirit. In this episode, I'm going to tell you why I trust the Bible. I want you to see and experience the trustworthiness of the scriptures. That's where we're going. Let's get started. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Feast and Be Filled podcast. You can support the podcast and Live Full Ministries by going to livefull.org slash give. Thanks to those of you who are supporting the ministry, sharing episodes and different resources from Live Full with those who can benefit from it, rating the podcast, reviewing the podcast. All this helps spread the word to those who would be blessed by this ministry. We're seeking to help followers of Jesus feast on the word and be filled with the spirit. And this episode is all about feasting on the word by trusting the word. My goal in this episode is that you would trust the scriptures with your life. And I really believe there are different degrees of trust. There's a degree of trust that you might have when you go into a minor surgery and you're choosing a surgeon. You've heard that they are skilled in that particular surgery. So in a way, you're entrusting yourself to them. But there also could be in the back of your mind the possibility that they could mess up the surgery and make a mistake, but you're choosing to trust the odds and go into surgery anyway to the best of what you've heard about the surgeon. I want you to trust the scriptures in a different way. I want you to trust the scriptures as though your life depends on the word of God because your life does depend on the word of God. I want you, in other words, to trust the scriptures like a rock climber hanging over a cliff trusts the rope that's holding him up. What I mean here is that you trust the scriptures far more than you trust any other authority. It means that you trust the scriptures more than you trust yourself. This episode is for all believers. Maybe it's for you and you don't particularly have struggles with trusting the Bible, but this is to strengthen your faith in the living God and in his word. But this episode is also especially helpful for you to share with a friend who is struggling to believe in the trustworthiness of God and in his word. There are two questions we're going to answer in this episode. The first is, is the Bible God's word? And the second is, is this word God's word? The first is, is the Bible God's word? This is the question of inspiration. And the second question is, is this word, meaning our English Bibles that we read every day, is this word God's word? And that's the question of preservation. Let's begin with the question of inspiration. Is the Bible God's word? Here's the claim I want to begin with. The Bible in the 39 books of the Old Testament And the 27 books of the New Testament is the inerrant and inspired word of God. Let me say that again. The Bible in the 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 books of the New Testament is the inerrant and inspired word of God. Now, I just threw out some terminology that I want to define. Let's define our terms. Inerrancy. What is inerrancy? Inerrancy means that scripture is without error in everything that it affirms. I believe it was Wayne Grudem that made this distinction, and it's really helpful. 
Let me give you the classic example to show you what I mean by this. Psalm 14.1 says, there is no God. Psalm 14.1 says, there is no God. Now, that isolated statement is not true. So does that break the inerrancy of Scripture? Of course not. In the context, Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Scripture is without error in everything that it affirms. So you might have a statement from Satan in the Scripture that is a blatant lie, but because of that isolated statement not being true, that doesn't contradict the inerrancy of Scripture. Scripture is without error in everything that it affirms. When you read the Scriptures and see the totality, see the context of statements like, there is no God, everything that Scripture is affirming, everything Scripture is putting forth as truth is truth. That's inerrancy. Inspiration. What is inspiration? We said that the Bible and the 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 books of the New Testament is the inerrant and inspired word of God. What is inspiration? Scripture is breathed out by God so that the words of Scripture are God's very words in the original manuscripts. Let me say that again. Scripture is breathed out by God so that the words of Scripture are God's very words in the original manuscripts. So if we go back to the claim the Bible and the 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 books of the New Testament is the inerrant and inspired word of God, you'll see that this is actually a redundant statement. What do I mean? The word of God is what inspiration means. Inspiration means that scripture is breathed out by God. And whatever is inspired is inerrant. Whatever is inspired is, by definition, inerrant. What do I mean? If we're trying to ask the question, is the Bible God's word? To answer this question, I could focus on inerrancy. I could go through the book of Numbers, I could go through Chronicles, and I could try to help align every supposed contradiction in the accounts of history in Kings, Samuel, Chronicles, or we could show how the different angles in the gospel accounts align, and that would be a worthy thing to show. But Proving inerrancy would not prove that the scriptures are inspired. If the Bible is inerrant, it's not necessarily inspired. For example, I could right now write on a sheet of paper, my name is Joseph Schwartz and I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now that is an inerrant statement, but it's not inspired. That's an inerrant statement, but it's not breathed out by God as the word of God. You see, inerrancy does not necessitate inspiration. Just because it's inerrant doesn't mean that it's inspired. But inspiration necessitates inerrancy. Inspiration necessitates inerrancy. If God is the ultimate author of the Bible, if God is the ultimate author of the Bible, then he's not mistaken about the creation account. He's not mistaken about historical details and other truth statements in the Bible. He is the author and definer of truth. There can be no greater authority which could correct God in his truth claims. If God says the light is darkness, then it becomes dark. God defines reality. So if the Bible is breathed out by God, by definition, because God is the one who creates reality, the Bible is therefore inerrant. So in order to answer the question, is the Bible God's word, we're going to focus on the question of inspiration. Again, we could go through all of the supposed contradictions with inerrancy, but that would not prove it was inspired. Just like fact-checking whether my name is Joseph Schwartz, and I do live in Charlotte, North Carolina, which by the way, I am and I do, 
would not prove that that statement is inspired. We're focusing on inspiration because if the Bible is inspired, it is inerrant. So let's dive into that. How do we know that the Bible is inspired? How do we know, another way of saying that, how do we know that the Bible is God's word, is breathed out by God? I want to show you that the Gospels, the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the cornerstone for inerrancy. In other words, if you believe that the Gospels are trustworthy accounts, then all Scripture is inspired. Now, I'm going to show you the line of argument, and then I'll loop around to give you reasons why each chain of the link is true. Okay, there are five points here. I'm going to walk through them, and then I'm going to go through them one by one. First, the Gospels are trustworthy accounts. Second, the Gospels say that Jesus is the Son of God who raised from the dead. Third, the Son of God affirmed the inspiration of the Old Testament. Fourth, the Son of God authorized the inspiration of the New Testament. And fifth, the Old Testament and New Testament are God's word. Let me go through them again. The Gospels are trustworthy accounts. The Gospels say that Jesus is the Son of God who raised from the dead. The Son of God affirmed the inspiration of the Old Testament. The Son of God authorized the inspiration of the New Testament. And the Old Testament and the New Testament, therefore, are God's word. Okay, so let's begin with the first part of the argument. The Gospels are trustworthy accounts. How do we know that the Gospels are trustworthy accounts? What we need to say from the very beginning is that we do not know that the Gospels are trustworthy accounts through the test of positive rationalism. Those who would seek to know that the Bible is true through positive rationalism demand proof that can be put under the microscope and validated by the scientific method. It is airtight proof that satisfies the demands of our enlightened age. Now, the reason why the gospel accounts cannot be proven to be the word of God through the demands of positive rationalism is because, first of all, positive rationalism by default presumes that God could not have supernaturally breathed his word into existence over the course of centuries. But even more importantly, as we're seeking to know whether we can trust the Gospels, what we need to know is that people do not operate their lives by positive rationalism. Let me give you an example of this. Think about your best friend. Maybe it's a friend that you've had since childhood. All right, think about their name right now, the name that you've been calling them their whole life. Now, a question for you is, have you ever seen their birth certificate that legally proves that that is their name? Most likely, you have never seen the birth certificate of your best friend, which gives you positive rationalistic proof that that is their legal name. And yet, you've been operating your entire life as if that was their name. And the reason is, is because you've been gathering all of the evidence. You've probably decided that there's no good reason why they would lie to you about their name. And without seeing the legal airtight proof evidence... You have trusted that your best friend's name is actually their name. Another example of this is your parents. Maybe you grew up in a house that your parents owned. Did you ever see the legal deed that showed you that your parents owned the house that they said they owned? Again, it's likely that you didn't, and yet you operated throughout your childhood as if they really did own the house because they said they did, and all evidence pointed to the fact that they probably wouldn't lie to you about that. Humans do not take their truth claims through positive rationalism. They don't. We gather the evidence, and if the evidence is strongly pointing to the fact that something is true, like, for example, your best friend has no reason to lie about their legal name or your parents have no reason to lie about the fact that they own a house, then we believe it. And what you need to know is that we have all the evidence we need 
to believe and know that the gospels are trustworthy accounts. So what is, what is the evidence that the gospels are trustworthy accounts? In this, I want to point you to a book that was extremely helpful for me in the research that I did on this some years ago, and I commend it to you. Peter Williams, Can We Trust the Gospels? Peter Williams, Can We Trust the Gospels? Really, really helpful in getting into the trustworthiness of the gospels. I'm going to give you five major pieces of evidence that the gospels are trustworthy accounts, and there are more. But first, historical witness. Historical witness. The theory among those who do not believe that the Gospels are trustworthy accounts is that Christ was a historical teacher who died in Rome. But after years and years and years as the stories spread about this man, Jesus, he became more than a teacher. And in these legends, he became a God through the Gospel accounts. Now, in order for that theory to be true, you need enough passing of time for this man, Jesus, who was merely a man, according to the theory, to become a legend, not just decades, but centuries later, enough time to pass for the multitudes who knew that Jesus was merely a man to pass, and then a new generation to come who would create these legends. This is the theory. But if you look at the historical witness, Tacitus, Tacitus, born in AD 56, some 23 years after the death of Christ, wrote that Christ was killed while Tiberius was emperor. When was Tiberius emperor? Between AD 14 and 37. And while Pontius Pilate was in charge of Judea, which was between AD 26 and 36. And he, by the way, was not writing favorably about Christianity, this Tacitus. He called Christianity a disease. But what's important for you to know is that Tacitus is placing historically the death of Christ between the years AD 26 and 36. That's what we know. Then Pliny the Younger, born around AD 61, writes around AD 111 about Christians who are worshiping Christ as to a god and denying all other gods in the first century. Now, how how could so early on a group of Jews have started worshiping a mere human? And Gentiles had given their allegiance to one Lord, a Jewish man, by the way, just by a mere telephone, by people passing on these stories and it becoming a legend. There's not enough passage of time for this to happen. Finally, Josephus, a Jewish historian, he was born in AD 37. He writes in AD 93 that James, the brother of Jesus, was killed in AD 62 for his faith. This is 30 years after the crucifixion of Christ. Josephus writing in AD 93, he says that Jesus's brother, Jesus's historical brother was killed 30 years after the death of Christ for his faith. What we see here at least is that the historical witness is pointing to the fact that something major happened, something world-shaking happened in AD 33 that would make a man named James believe that his brother was God and die for him, and a group of Gentiles and Jews start to deny all other gods and worship Jesus alone by AD 111. The historical witness points to the fact that the Gospels are trustworthy accounts. The second piece of evidence about the trustworthiness of the Gospels is their attention to detail. Their attention to detail. One element of this that you see really clearly in the Gospel accounts is their detail in geography. So, for example, John mentions Anon, Cana, Ephraim, Salem, Sychar, Bethany, Bethpage, Ramah. Now, this might not seem like a major point, but it's actually a major sign that those who wrote the Gospel accounts were contemporaries of Jesus during his ministry. 
It would kind of be like if anyone listening to this went to UNC Chapel Hill. It's as though their geographic detail is like if someone wrote a book or a nonfiction book 30 years from now, and they began to talk about Ram's Head Dining Hall and B-Skis and Hamilton and Carroll Hall and the Agora. It's not just that they talked about Franklin Street, which any outsider could know about, but they're using insider language to talk about the location points. And you would know that since B-Skis closed down in 2018, I believe even since I've left UNC, Rams had changed its name. You would know that that person who are who is referring to those place names would have had to be in Chapel Hill in the 2000s and 2010s. And that is exactly what we see in the gospel accounts. Their specific mention of detail and geography, it is the language that only someone who would have been there would have used. Now listen to this. This is really interesting. Contrast this, these accounts, gospel of John, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, contrast them with the Gospel of Thomas, which is an apocryphal gospel. It's not inspired. The Gospel of Thomas names only Judea. And the Gospel of Judas, another apocryphal gospel, which was not written by Judas, and the Gospel of Philip, they both mention no locations. They mention no locations. They, by lacking the geographic detail and place names, are showing that they were not contemporaries with Jesus. On the other hand, those who wrote the true and inspired gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they have place names all over. Why? Because they were contemporaries with Jesus. The third piece of evidence for the trustworthiness of the gospels is the Jewishness of the apostles. The Jewishness of the apostles. Again, if the gospel writers are as they claim Jewish with potentially the exception of Luke, who was either a Greek Jew or just a Greek who was converted to Christianity. And even in the case of Luke, he used the apostle Paul, who was a Jew, as his main source for the life of Jesus. If these gospel authors were in fact Jewish, then you have in the gospel accounts, you have a group of Jews who worship the Lord God alone, writing about the fact that the Messiah has come in the flesh and is now to be worshiped as the Son of God. Why would they do that? In fact, why would they hold this truth all the way to their death unless Jesus had in fact come, died, and rose again, proving to be the Son of God? Do the gospel accounts those show the Jewishness of the apostles? And this is without debate among scholars. You see Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, it begins with a lengthy genealogy, a very Jewish practice. Mark begins, begins with a quotation from the Old Testament. John begins with in the beginning, which is referring to Genesis 1.1. And even Luke, which is the least Jewish of the gospels for reasons which we've already gone into, he quotes the Old Testament all throughout the gospel account. The Jewishness of the gospel accounts is without question. That's the third piece of evidence for the trustworthiness of the gospels. The fourth is the genius of Christ, the genius of Christ. And I think this is so important. If you read through the gospel accounts, you immediately see in the teachings of Christ, a genius teacher, a teacher whose words exceed any other teacher in his day. And this same teacher, by the way, is also claiming that he is the son of God come to save the world. Now, either the gospel accounts faithfully record the genius teaching of this Christ, including the fact that he was himself God, or someone else is responsible for this teaching, in which case a movement probably would have surrounded around them instead. But even more importantly, when I say the genius of Christ, I'm not primarily referring to Christ as a genius teacher, but the genius of Christ's life in the sense that 
In the gospel accounts, you see Christ as the fulfillment of prophecy, a multitude of prophecies throughout the Old Testament, all fulfilled in one person and in one life. By one count, there are 191 prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the life of Christ. Now think about this. Either a group of disciples got together to somehow change the story of this Jewish man's life to conform to hundreds of Old Testament prophecies about the Christ and put forth genius teaching that perfectly came together to show him to be the Son of God. In which case, whoever was able to devise such a story probably would have been worshipped as God. Or what is much more likely is that the Gospels are simply an accurate recording of who Christ is. That in fact, this was his teaching. In fact, he was the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. And of course, the only author who could put together such a story that can make one man's life fulfill 191 prophecies is God himself through the gospel writers. The fourth piece of evidence is the genius of Christ. And the fifth is the resurrection of Christ. Now, I don't have time in this episode to get into all of the reasons why the resurrection is far and away the most likely explanation for what happened to Jesus after he died and what caused the movement of early Christianity. I would encourage you to go. A wonderful chapter on this is found in Reason, The Reason for God by Tim Keller. Suffice it to say here that the theory that Jesus's disciples came together and decided together to write down a lie that Jesus had, in fact, risen from the grave and that he was the Son of God, and then decided to record that lie in the gospel accounts, is contradicted not only by the fact that, as we've discussed, these disciples were first-century Jews who, who would have had to, in this theory, turn away from their monotheism and begin worshiping a man as God, but even more so by the fact that all of these disciples held on to this supposed lie until their death. Now, if this was a group of friends who got together and said, hey, let's make up this lie about Jesus and let's tell everyone about it and start this movement, perhaps they would think that that would be a good idea in the beginning. But as one of them was killed for that lie, they would probably start to think, is this a good idea? And then as another was killed for that lie, then they would start to think harder. And then by the time that it got to the apostle John, the last disciple who had not been killed for his faith, he probably would have thought, you know what? I should just confess that this whole thing is a lie and save my life. But that's not what happened. Every single disciple after the resurrection of Jesus held on to the truth that Jesus was the son of God who raised from the grave all the way until their death. And the most likely explanation for why they would have done that is that it actually happened and they could not have denied what they had seen and heard. History testifies to a group of Jews who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ and held on to it until their final breath. The Gospels, you see, are trustworthy accounts. Now, that was a lot, but that was just our first piece of our argument for why the Bible is God's word. The first piece was that the Gospel are trustworthy accounts. Now, if we trust the Gospel accounts, we trust what they say, and we just sought to establish that they are indeed trustworthy accounts, then we move on to the next chain of the link in this argument. The Gospels, these trustworthy accounts, say that Jesus is the Son of God who raised from the dead. Now, just a few scriptures that show this. John 1.1 says that Christ was in the beginning. He was with God, and he was God. John 8.58, Jesus makes an 
undeniable statement of his divinity when he says, before Abraham was, I am. You see in Matthew 28, verse 17, a group of Jews, again, they worship the resurrected Christ. You see all throughout the scriptures, whenever humans bow down to mere angels, the angels tell them, get up, only worship God. But in this case, when a group of Jews bow down to the resurrected Christ, he receives their worship. The Gospels say that Jesus is the Son of God who raised from the dead. These trustworthy accounts. Now move on to the next link. The Son of God affirmed the inspiration of the Old Testament. This Jesus in the trustworthy accounts, who was the Son of God in these Gospel accounts, he affirmed the inspiration of the Old Testament. Let me show you this. In Mark 12, verses 35 through 37, Jesus says that David was speaking in the Holy Spirit when he wrote the Psalms. In other words, it wasn't just David doing some songwriting on his own but the Holy Spirit was inspiring David as he was writing the Psalms. In Matthew 19, verses three through six, Jesus says that God said, Genesis 2, 24, even though in Genesis 2, 24, these words are not a direct quotation of God, but he said, God said them. Why? Because all of scripture is breathed out by God. In John 10, verses 33 through 36, Jesus quotes Psalm 82, verse six. He says, it is the word of God. And then he says, it cannot be broken. And then you see this in Matthew 4, Jesus quoting Deuteronomy. He says, man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, affirming that the scriptures themselves come from the mouth of God. The son of God, Jesus, looked back on the Old Testament and he affirmed the inspiration of the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? The next chain of the argument, the Son of God authorized the inspiration of the New Testament. The Son of God authorized the inspiration of the New Testament. You see this in John 14, verse 25. Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. In other words, Jesus was saying, I'm not going to give you the entire New Testament teaching, the entire rule of faith for the church through the apostles by sitting down and teaching you and having you transcribe everything I say, and that's going to be the entirety of the New Testament. No, he says, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but there is coming a helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, and he is going to teach you all things. He's going to bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. And then in John 16, verses 12 through 14, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, these promises, of course, are ours in Christ Jesus, but it is especially directed to the apostles, who Jesus promises will be filled with the Holy Spirit and guided into all truth so that they can write the New Testament scriptures inspired by God for his people. The Son of God authorized the inspiration of the New Testament, and therefore the Old Testament and the New Testament are God's word. That's the last piece of our argument. The Old Testament and New Testament are God's word. Now we can summarize everything that we just said in this one statement we know that the Bible is inspired because the trustworthy gospels show a resurrected son of God who affirmed and authorized its inspiration. Let me say that again. We know the Bible is inspired because the trustworthy gospels show a resurrected son of God who affirmed and authorized its inspiration. And this is why trust in Christ for salvation and trust in the inspiration of scripture is linked. Hear me there. I'm saying trust in Christ for salvation and trust in the inspiration of scripture is linked because either you believe in the Christ of the scriptures, 
and you believe that he affirmed and authorized the inspiration of scripture, or you don't trust that the Bible is God's word, and therefore you don't trust that the Christ who the scriptures present is the true Christ, and therefore you have no way of knowing who he is. If you choose to believe in the Christ of the Gospels, you must also believe what he said is true, which is that all of Scripture is inspired. That's the first question that we wanted to ask in this episode. Is the Bible God's word? That's the question of inspiration. And we can know. We can know that the Bible is inspired because the trustworthy Gospels show a resurrected Son of God who affirmed and authorized its inspiration. It's crucial for us to ask the question of inspiration, is the Bible God's word? But we must also ask, is this word God's word? If you're sitting in front of your Bible, whether it's in the ESV or NIV or KJV, it's a good question to ask, is this word God's word? And this is where we get into the issue of reliability. The question of inspiration is about authorship. Did God really breathe the word into existence? But the question of preservation is all about reliability. Can we trust that the word of God that was written by the prophets and the apostles is still the word of God for us today? I want to show you some evidence for the reliability of scripture. In other words, evidence that the Bible that we read is indeed God's word. In 1946, there was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in this discovery, scientists found fragments dating back to the second century BC. Until that discovery... Scholars who were translating the Bible had to rely on 9th century AD Masoretic texts. So you have a 1,000 year difference between the Masoretic texts, which were being used for translation, and the dating of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, in this discovery, there were pieces of every single Old Testament book except Esther, and there was in this discovery the entire book of Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, for example, the Masoretic text, which again was dated a thousand years after the Dead Sea Scrolls, matched the Dead Sea Scrolls 95% of the time. It matched the Dead Sea Scrolls 95% of the time. And even in the 5% where there was a difference between the Masoretic text and the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were mostly scribal errors. So you're talking about the course of a thousand years and the preservation of the Old Testament text. What's important about that is that before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you have a translation that's using a 9th century text. And in this discovery going back to the 2nd century, there's probably the wondering of how much of this text has been reliably preserved. And with the comparison between the two, you see that God faithfully guarded and kept the faithful preservation of the Old Testament text between the 2nd century BC and 1000 AD. Now, with the New Testament, there are 5,700 Greek manuscripts containing either parts or all of the New Testament text. You compare this to Homer's Iliad, which only has 1,757 manuscripts in existence. 5,700 Greek manuscripts. Comparing these manuscripts and tracing their origins for over 99% of the words of the Bible, we know what the original manuscript said. And maybe you're asking about that 1% where in translations, we don't have 100% certainty. 
what, what should be comforting for you is that those variants, those manuscript variants where there might be some uncertainty about the exact wording for a specific verse, those are found in your Bible. If you're reading your Bible and you go down to the footnotes and it says, some manuscripts say this, or some manuscripts say this, the translators will put in the Bible where there's uncertainty about specific word. But for nearly all those manuscript variants, there is not an impact on the meaning of the verse, or the doctrine within the scripture. So we have great reason to believe that not only are the scriptures God's very words, but that his words have been preserved for us through the centuries and are reliable. That's the question of preservation. God, through his grace, has preserved the word of God for us so that as we read our Bibles, we can trust that this word is God's word. But here's where I want to end. I believe that we have even greater grounds for knowing that the Bible is God's word than anything that I've said up until this point. The way that we can know that the Bible is God's word is from the Bible itself. When it comes to the inspiration of the Bible, of knowing whether the word of God is the word of God, the end of the debate is the self-authorization of the scriptures. Imagine I was sitting down with you and I pulled out a letter that was from J.K. Rowling. And I say, hey, here's a letter, and it's from J.K. Rowling. It really is. And we went back and forth on this, and you were questioning whether, is that really from her? I don't think that you would have actually gotten a letter from her. And I'm telling you, no, it really is. She knows me through this connection, and she decided to write me a letter, and so on and so on. And we're going back and forth. I'm telling you that this letter is authored by J.K. Rowling. You're saying, no, it's not. There's no way that it actually is. And we're going on and on and on in this debate. Now, imagine as we're sitting down in this debate of whether or not this letter is authored by J.K. Rowling, bursting in through the door comes J.K. Rowling herself. And she takes the letter and she waves it in front of you and says, I wrote this letter. Well, what happens at that point? The debate is over because the author herself came into the room, held the letter, showed it to you, and told you that she really is the author. There's no more debate. When you are reading through the Bible by the power of the Holy Spirit, you don't have to wonder whether God is the author. You don't even have to debate whether God is the author. The Holy Spirit himself bursts through the walls of your heart and with undeniable affirmation, with undeniable comfort, he testifies as you're reading the Bible, this is indeed the word of God. God's living and active word is revealed to our hearts as God's word by the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures. I love the quote of John Calvin here. He says, Scripture exhibits fully as clear evidence of its own truth as white and black things do of their color or sweet and bitter things do of their taste. The testimony of the Spirit is more excellent than all reason. The Word will not find acceptance in men's hearts before it is sealed by the inward testimony of the Spirit. You could say that quote is an exposition of 1 Peter 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The only way to truly see that the scriptures are divine is to read them. I've given you some argument in this episode. I've given you some reasoning, but the truth is that when the Holy Spirit fills your heart as you read the Bible, the debate is over. You see See in the deepest place of your heart that the Bible is God's word. You see, the title of this episode is Why I Trust the Bible. 
And the real answer has very little to do with manuscript evidence. I trust the Bible because when I was a junior in high school, I came back from a camp in Colorado and I opened my red Catholic Bible that had been gathering dust for 17 years in my room and I began to read and I encountered God in the scriptures. I found in reading the Bible words of life. And I've found over the course of my walk with Jesus, the word of God to be divine, not because of some airtight argument for inspiration that satisfied the intellectual demands of our age, but because I have experienced the power of the Holy Spirit through the word. And that has satisfied and silenced the doubts of my longing heart. I know that I know that I know that I know that the Bible is God's word, and I trust it like a rock climber trusting his rope because the Holy Spirit has burst through the word and affirmed day after day in my longing, yes, this is my word. And this is why this whole ministry, Live Full, is about how God's word and God's spirit are not at odds, but we need the Holy Spirit to know that the Bible truly is the word of God. Trust the Bible, read the Bible, and grow your trust in the Bible by experiencing its trustworthiness, not just believing it intellectually, but experiencing it through the glorious, undeniable internal witness of the Holy Spirit, who is saying, this is my word long for the pure spiritual milk, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That's all for this episode. We'll see you next time.